World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When Epic, which makes the game Fortnite, took on Apple in court, it was pitched as, well, an epic battle, challenging Apple's stranglehold on the money that app makers earn. A verdict is now in, and the tech giant appears to have won, but not entirely. And if regulators do their regulating only one-sixth of the time, do the regulated keep within the regulations for only one-sixth of the time? A close look at some air pollution data suggests that the answer is, disappointingly, yes. But first... It's now been a month since the Taliban took over Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, and with it, the country as a whole. Now, they're struggling to run it. Zabihullah Mujahid, the Taliban's deputy information and culture minister, has admitted they didn't expect to gain power so quickly. When they did, international aid stopped, aid that propped up most of the government's budget. So poverty is soaring, and at a conference convened by the United Nations, its boss, Antonio Guterres, warned that many Afghans could find themselves without food as winter sets in. After decades of war, suffering and insecurity, they face perhaps their most perilous hour. Now is the time for the international community to stand with them. And let us be clear, this conference is not simply about what we will give to the people of Afghanistan. It is about what we owe Donors have so far pledged more than a billion dollars, but that won't go very far in helping the country's 39 million citizens. Afghanistan's been in the grip of a humanitarian crisis before the events of the last few weeks. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. It's got very high poverty rates. It has a very weak government. Ben Farmer writes about Afghanistan for The Economist. But now on top of this, you have a Taliban takeover. It means foreign aid has ended. It means the economy has collapsed. And all these things are coming together to create what could be a really horrendous humanitarian crisis. And you say this was building even before the Taliban's takeover. I mean, what's the scope of it? All sorts of factors have come together to to build this crisis. And it was beginning before the Taliban takeover. There's been a drought in the country, which has driven a lot of people off the land and destroyed a lot of farming. We've had the COVID pandemic, which has been very bad for the economy in Afghanistan. We've had the war, which has driven people out of their homes and led to a huge amount of internal displacement. And it's all already one of the, the poorest countries in the world, largely dependent on aid, three quarters of the government budget comes from foreign aid or did come from foreign aid before the Taliban took over. 
with the Taliban arrival, that aid has stopped. The economy is in free fall. And you still have the fallout from the war, the fallout from the drought, and the fallout from COVID. So all these things have come together. It really is a perfect storm. And you've been in Afghanistan as, as recently as a few days ago. What's, what's the situation like on the ground? What did you see? There is relief that the war is over. There is a, a measure of stability after years of fighting. But that stability for a lot of people has come with a significant amount of fear because the Taliban are in charge. No one knows how they will govern. And then on top of that, there is this economic meltdown, which really is affecting the daily lives of a huge number of people. The government, before the takeover, had an enormous payroll, uh, was responsible for feeding and paying a huge number of people. All those people have lost their salaries. There's a lot of people in the streets selling their possessions. There's a lot more beggars than there used to be. It's a very difficult situation for people in Afghanistan at the moment. And who did you see while you were there? Who did you speak to? I was trying to speak to as broad a range of people as possible. You saw, everybody saw the, the scenes of the evacuation and the airlift in the early days of the Taliban takeover. And a huge number of people who worked for the government or who were uh, related to or working for foreign organizations and often these were some of the most educated people have left the country or are desperate to leave or are laying low if they haven't been able to leave because they fear that the Taliban will be looking for them or will be out to enact reprisals or so on. When I went out into the countryside, I went out into the countryside in rural Kandahar, which is one of the places where the war has been at its worst. There's, there's been fighting there for probably 15 years or more and there, there was a feeling of relief that there just wasn't any war anymore. So there are lots of different people with lots of different uh, emotions, really, about what's happened. But overall, I would say it felt more peaceful than I'd ever seen it, but it did feel tense. And as far as what's been pledged so far, how much do you think it, it will help? It can help. It will help uh, for a time, but one of the things that the new Taliban government has to deal with is that it's a country which is largely dependent on aid. Very quickly, they're going to have to plug that gap because otherwise services will completely break down. The World Food Programme's Deputy Regional Director, Anthea Webb, said that many Afghans do not have access to cash to afford sufficient food. There simply is uh, an inability for the poorest people, and very soon the not-so-poor people, to be able to buy enough food to survive. We are quite literally begging and borrowing to avoid food stocks running out in October. So this aid uh, from this UN conference will fill a gap for some time, but it will be a limited amount of time. And really, somehow, the international community and the Taliban need to work out how to put Afghanistan on a, a firmer footing. But, but what hope then that the Taliban can do that? I mean, what does this looming crisis tell you about the, the challenges that lie ahead and, and how much do you think the Taliban can actually get ahead of them? Well, I don't think the Taliban are going to be able to do it on their own, but the rest of the world is very cautious about giving money to the Taliban government because they don't know yet how they're going to govern and indeed some of the signs that we've seen are not promising. So the world is not going to give them aid if they are carrying out reprisal killings, if they're uh, repressing women. So this will become a struggle between how much the Taliban wants 
international recognition and aid and how much the international community wants to give aid to the Afghan people. And both sides are probably going to have to compromise. But that's been pretty much the assessment since the Taliban took over. I mean, from what you've seen, does it look like compromise is going to be on the table? It still looks a little bit up in the air. We're not sure exactly how the Taliban are going to govern. But I think the humanitarian crisis is going to put a lot of pressure on the international community. And you've seen this language from the United Nations talking about what a crisis, what a disaster it could be. So the UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, was also in Geneva, and she said, uh, in contradiction to assurances that the Taliban would uphold women's rights, over the past three weeks, women have instead been progressively excluded from the public sphere. So before the Taliban came into power, they were telling the international community that they'd changed. But in the first four weeks of their government, it looks like they're still run by hardliners and they haven't changed that much. Thanks very much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. On the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show, my colleague Anne McElvoy speaks with Britain's chief of the defense staff, General Sir Nick Carter. He talks about the future of Taliban rule and how the West should engage with Afghanistan's new government. The Taliban will have learnt the lessons of 2001 as much as we did. And I'm absolutely certain that they won't want to allow their country to become the sort of place that we would want to attack again. And it would be illogical for them to do that. Uh, They'd have nothing to gain from it. Look for The Economist Asks from your preferred podcast purveyor. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. We're thrilled to share our newest product announcements. As happens every year about this time, yesterday Apple trotted out the latest versions of its iPhone and smartened up its smartwatch. Arguably, though, the bigger news that the company has had to deal with is the outcome of a blockbuster legal case. Last year, Epic, a games maker whose products include the wildly popular Fortnite, sued the tech giant, accusing it of abusing its monopoly power. Epic said Apple forced it to keep all in-game purchases within Apple's App Store and then took too big a slice of the revenues. On Friday, a judge disagreed, mostly, but it's clear from the fine detail of the verdict that similar tussles still lie ahead. It's a 185-page doorstop, but the, the way to sum it up is that Apple have won almost all, but not quite all, of the points in question. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. I guess the takeaway line would be success is not illegal. And the judge said that uh, Epic had failed to present enough evidence to suggest that Apple had abused the control it has over iPhones and the App Store. So it sounds as if, in a broad sense, Apple simply won here, cut and dried. 
They certainly won on on the biggest points. So the most important one was not to be a monopoly and not to be misusing the power that they have over their phones and, and the software that you buy for them. So there is still no way for Epic to do what it really wants to do, which is to set up a rival app store to compete with Apple's own and allow iPhone users to buy software from somebody other than Apple. But I don't think it's it's entirely cut and dried. So there were a couple of interesting snippets buried in the judgment. One was that although the judge said Epic hadn't shown that Apple was a monopolist, she didn't necessarily think it would be impossible to do that, just that Epic hadn't managed. But the biggest setback, I guess, for Apple is that the judge was sympathetic to Epic on this question of steering policies, where it has, up until now, been not allowed for most apps that are on Apple's App Store to let their users know that there might be other ways to pay for things that you can buy within those apps rather than going through Apple, you take a 30% cut. So it may be that, you know, if you go onto my website, you can buy something for less than Apple charges and I'll be the one who takes the commission rather than, than Apple. Until now, under these sort of anti-steering provisions that Apple enforces, developers haven't been allowed to do that. And the judge said that in future, Apple would have to stop. So you say that's the most important facet here. I mean, what what does that actually mean for, for Apple's business, the, the App Store's business? I mean, the market didn't seem to care all that much. Apple's share price fell by 3%, which is a large number in dollar terms. I think it's about $85 billion, but that's just because Apple's an, an enormous company. I think it, it's a sort of open question what kind of effect this might have in the long run. So Epic kind of provoked all this by offering customers a way to pay for things within Fortnite that was cheaper than if you went to Apple. And that was enough to get them kicked off the App Store for violating Apple's rules. In future, it seems like other companies are going to be able to do that too. The big question is how interested consumers will actually be. So we know from app design in general that convenience is almost everything. So if I can push a button within an app to buy a thousand crystals or whatever it is I'm, I'm buying in my game, I'm much more likely just to do that in the app than to you know pause the game, close the app, open a web browser and, and, and go and do it there. On the other hand, the amount of money that people spend in games, it's massively skewed. So most people spend hardly anything and a tiny proportion of people, well under 1%, account for the majority of all the money that's spent. So if I'm spending hundreds of dollars a month on my, my favorite game, then that's quite a significant amount of money. And maybe with those kind of stakes, I would be persuaded to go outside Apple's little walled garden to, to buy the things I'm paying for. And if that was the case, then you could start to see the revenue that Apple earns from the App Store starting to fall off. I think at the moment, we're just going to have to wait and see. And barring uh, any success of an appeal here, this looks to be the end of the Apple Epic case. But how much will it act as a, a legal precedent for, for future moves like this? Well, there's, there's definitely going to be an appeal. Epic have already filed one. And if you talk to, to some of the lawyers involved or the lawyers who are watching this, they say, you know, this, this could well end up at the Supreme Court. It's worth noting we've been talking a lot about this American lawsuit. But uh, of course, Apple operates all around the world. And there have been developments in, in other countries too. So in September, Apple had to settle with Japan's Fair Trade Commission, which involved, again, allowing certain kinds of apps. So those that, that give you access to, to digital content like books and music, you had to allow them to also direct users to other ways to pay for what they were buying. It also has to comply with a new law passed in South Korea, which bans both it and Google and anybody else from requiring smartphone users to pay using the payment systems built into Apple and Google's own stores. 
And in Europe and America, we've seen both those legislatures at least you know, toying with the idea of changing the law in, in similar ways. So we're going to have to wait and see where the legal story ends. I think one question is going to be whether it gets trumped before it can finish by legislative action. And you mentioned this sort of general backlash towards tech in, in those jurisdictions and in others. Do you think this judgment is uh, telling as for how that's going to play out? I don't think the judgment is because the judgment is based on American competition law, which is complicated and there are all these precedents you have to know and, and so on. I think the amount of attention it attracted maybe does reflect the tech lash. Lots of governments are sort of grappling with the power of these companies in various ways. And the big question is going to be how many of those governments are happy to leave those kind of questions to the courts, as America's has so far, and how many governments, as we've seen in South Korea, decide actually, no, we're not going to leave this to the courts. We're going to change the rules, change the laws to rein these companies in. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Athletes don't get advance warning of drug tests. Police don't share schedules of planned raids. Yet, when it comes to monitoring air pollution, America's Environmental Protection Agency doesn't see much value in the element of surprise. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, many polluters seem to be taking advantage. The EPA's scheme of pollution monitoring warns local governments and companies when they're going to be testing air quality. Ainsley Johnston is a data journalist for The Economist. Every year, the EPA publishes a list of dates detailing when state and local agencies need to provide data on the concentrations of harmful particulate matter. And as companies have a heads up on when they're being checked, this theoretically allows them to pollute less on the days when they know they're being watched. And unfortunately, this seems to be what's happening. And how is it that we know that? So the US has around 1,200 air monitoring sites. And many of these provide a continuous stream of information about air pollution levels. But some only record data intermittently, so specifically only once every six days. However, we can get information on air quality from another source. So NASA uses satellites to monitor air pollution from space all the time. And it makes its data freely available. So using this information, Eric Zhu, a researcher at the University of Oregon, was able to spy on polluters at times when they thought no one was watching. Looking at data over a 12-year period, he found that pollution was worse on days where the EPA weren't monitoring air quality. How much worse? On average, there was almost 2% more pollutants in the air on the bad days. So this may not seem like a big difference, but even this small share can be harmful to people. A recent study from the University of Chicago showed that globally, air pollution causes a greater loss of life years than smoking, HIV AIDS, or even car crashes. This so-called pollution gap is taking years off the lives of the US population, particularly in places like Appalachia, the Midwest, areas where there's lots of mining, and also in places like the Mountain West states where paper and lumber mills are pretty common. So in these areas, people were under the illusion that the monitoring systems were keeping them safe from air pollution. In fact, really, it was just hiding the true scale of the problem. So this pollution gap, that's not just a, a measuring artifact. It's not an accident. It really is them gaming the system. It looks like it's not an accident. In areas where these one in six monitoring stations were retired, 
the average pollution levels on what would have been the monitoring days quickly rose, which suggests that businesses or even local governments were gaming the system. Another telltale sign is that the pollution gap also varies by region and the size of the gap increases where there's a higher cost of being caught. When US counties fail to meet the environmental standards, the EPA can give out fines, impose tough regulations on businesses and force them to change their clean air practices. So in places where firms or local governments were at risk of facing sanctions, they seem to game the monitoring system in a more aggressive way. And what does the EPA make of their system being gamed? So they haven't directly responded to the paper, but they have told me that they're phasing out the one in six day monitoring system. So they've started a cash incentive scheme for local governments who bring in continuous monitoring systems. And by now, around only 10% of the monitoring stations report every sixth day. But of course, this isn't going to be a silver bullet. Simply improving monitoring doesn't mean that pollution is going to stop. But I think what the study highlights is that pollution in the US is worse than many people expected. And it's the EPA's job to fix this. Ainsley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.